Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today is Monday, August 1st, 2022. And believe it or not, I've got a few things I want to get off my chest. Of course, we've had this controversy about the definition of a recession lately and whether or not two straight quarters of negative GDP growth, in other words, a decline in GDP, is the definition of a recession or not. And while it is true that people have been using that as shorthand to define a a recession for as long as I can remember, there's probably some truth to the assertion that we're not technically in a recession solely because GDP declined for two straight quarters. I think I saw an article where they they went back to 1947 or something like that, where that was the one other occurrence where uh, we didn't have a recession, uh, even though there were two straight quarters of uh, negative GDP growth or GDP contraction. So as silly as it is to quibble about you know, whether or not we're in a recession. I I just want to remind everybody the word recession is relatively new. This is something they came up with so they wouldn't have to say the word depression after the Great Depression that the Federal Reserve and the government caused. Uh, They didn't want to say that word anymore because it would discourage people and make them behave differently. So then they came up with recession. And now they do have some economic indicator uh, difference between the two things, which almost guarantees that we'll never have a depression again. Although I think we might actually, even by this, this new arbitrary definition. But I think all of this kind of loses in the weeds what's important. And that is that the economy produced less goods and services for two straight quarters that uh, we're producing less stuff. It doesn't matter what what you call it, whether it's a recession or not. And what the Biden administration points to to prove that it's not a recession are the creation of new jobs and the unemployment rate. 
So this is a fundamental flaw in Keynesian thinking, and I'm going to read you actually a passage from Keynes that is indicative of this wacky way of looking at the world that people work just for the sake of working, that creating a job, even if the product of that job is useless to anybody, even if nobody would voluntarily give up anything that they have to acquire the what's produced from this job, that there's still some benefit to it. So just to get to some of the numbers, and don't forget, these are government numbers. So there are plenty of uh, criticisms by free market economists of the GDP number, first of all, one that it doesn't count enough. It should be a lot larger because it doesn't count all the stages of production. Uh, while critis- critics of that criticism say, well, that's all in- included in the final price. GDP really only counts uh, retail spending in the end, and it counts government spending. So uh, other critics, or maybe the same critics, say that uh, GDP, you know, government spending should be subtracted from GDP because this is spending on things that nobody voluntarily bought. The government just buys whatever it wants, and taxpayers are forced to pay for it, whether or not they would have bought that in a, a free market or not, and whether or not they would have bought it at the price the government buys it at or not. So GDP is a questionable number at best, but it's the government's number. So we're going to go with the mainstream so-called economists and politicians and media, financial media, on how the economy is doing, measured by GDP. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, then you know that I've often qualified this jobs report as no more than sticking your finger in your mouth and then holding it out in the wind. They do a phone survey, and then based on this phone survey, they they make all kinds of assumptions. They have a built-in couple of hundred thousand jobs uh, that they have no idea that even were created. So it's very much a, a government number, but to the extent that the methodology for arriving at hasn't changed over the years and decades... Uh, unlike CPI, at least we can use it for what it's worth. But again, I'm going with the government's own narrative, which is that, well, we don't have a um, a recession really because the jobs market is so strong. And it turns out that 2.7 million jobs were, new jobs supposedly, were created in the first two quarters of this year. And during that time, GDP declined by 1.6% over the first quarter, the first three months, and 0.9% from there over the second three months. Now, breaking up the jobs, again, this is according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics jobs report, uh, 1.6 million jobs were created in the first three months. Now, just think about this. If we created new jobs and produced less, then those jobs, those new jobs that were created were on net worthless because you're producing less stuff with even more people. And this this goes to the heart of what I was just saying, that, that just purely toiling for the sake of toiling is not productive for anybody. But statists of all varieties think that it is. Our, our 
economic masterminds are mostly Keynesians, and um, they they have their own idea of uh, why unemployed labor is bad. But even people like Adolf Hitler believe this crazy idea that as long as people were toiling away at something, regardless of what, if anything, they were producing, that somehow this was creating wealth. He even had a law at one point during uh, Nazi Germany before the war where you were not allowed to quit your job without the government's permission because he wanted to keep unemployment numbers low. So, of course, this is a silly idea. Nobody works just for the sake of working. Of course, most people who are employed by some going concern work for the currency units that that going concern will give them. But here's the crux. No business exists for the purpose of employing people. That's not the reason people start businesses. Employing people is a necessary cost of producing their product. They exist to produce products that other people will find useful enough that they will give up some of their own wealth to acquire these products. And therefore, the business can make a profit. And this is the key element that people that don't distinguish between government spending and voluntary private sector spending miss. And that is that people have to be willing to choose to buy something to give up some of their own money, money that they have exchanged part of their life to acquire in order for that thing to have any real value or in order for us to find out what the value of that thing is. Now, everyone's seen some TV special, especially years back. You don't see these very often anymore. I remember them back in uh, the Reagan years where they were running specials on how the government spends, you know, $55 to buy a nail, right? That that doesn't make that nail worth $55 because there was no voluntary tracks and transaction there. No, the buyer of that nail, the taxpayer, was not allowed to say, no, I won't buy it at that price. And that's why you know it's not worth $55 because if you go out on the market and buy that same nail where people do have a choice to say yes or no, it costs 25 cents or whatever it costs at the time. So this is why including government spending in GDP is at best misleading, inflated probably in some way, and at worst just it should completely be subtracted from GDP. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts a couple of ways by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts of every episode as well as access to my members-only MeWe group or become an all-access patron and get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos. You can even become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus a free copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there, and you can find links to all of the above 
at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. But again, going with the government's numbers, even counting all the money the government is spending, regardless of whether there's any value in what it's spending the money on, GDP still managed to contract for two straight quarters. So in the completely aggregate sense, you can say that this is proof that resources are being misdirected. We're creating more jobs to produce less stuff. And by stuff, I'm including goods and services. I should probably say products because a lot of mercantilists uh, or conservatives, but I repeat myself, um, tend to focus only on goods, on hard goods and not services. But indeed, goods and services are counted in the aggregate GDP number. Now, I should remind everybody that the first two quarters are as of the end of June. So this does not count July numbers. And as of the end of June, using this jobs report and using all its numbers is valid, that the economy had not yet recreated the 20 million jobs lost in March and April of 2020. So it was a little more than that, actually. It was uh, more like almost 22 million jobs lost between those two months. And then since then, the jobs created in the two years afterwards still fall 191,000 jobs short of equaling the jobs lost in March and April of 2020. So I expect that in July of this year, this month that just finished now, that we'll find out this Friday, August 5th, that indeed we are now over that, let me see, I'll get you the exact number. I actually keep a spreadsheet of these things and I keep it reasonably updated because you know the government goes back to past months and revises the numbers for a few months after they initially come out. So March and April of 2020, according to my spreadsheet, says we lost 21,991,000 jobs in those two months. And so just under 22 million. And then in the ensuing uh, 24, 25 months, up until the end of June of 2022, we had made up all but 191,000 of them. So We hadn't quite made up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do a little math here and say that number plus this number, Um, we had made up (laughs) 21,800,000 of the uh, 21,991,000 that we lost. So we still have 191,000 to go to break even on those two months of the initial months of the lockdowns. And 
I should also remind you that you shouldn't think of this like, oh, well, finally, we're back to, you know, going forward. No, we should have been creating additional jobs during all those months and not having not lost those 22 million jobs and then having created what we create on average for the five years before that, there should have been over 5 million new jobs created from March 2020 until today. So we're down over 5 million jobs that should have been created to sustain an an economy with a population that's constantly growing. And I also looked that up for you. There's about a million and a half more people in the country than there were uh, there was back in uh, March of 2020. So we've gained uh, more people. We're producing less stuff, at least in the last two quarters. And you might say that, well, wait a minute, how can unemployment be low if we have all these 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 new people and we have less jobs than we should have. We don't even have as many jobs as we did with the smaller population. Well, that's because people keep leaving the workforce and a certain amount of those people are retiring. And then a certain amount are just giving up looking for work. And we don't count those in unemployment. So that's one way that the government fudges the unemployment numbers is to just keep adding people making the category wider and wider of people that they don't count as looking for work. I think at this point now, it's either six months or a year. If you tell people on the phone survey that, you know, you're, you've given up, you didn't look for work last month. Well, you're just not counted. You're not counted as unemployed, even though you're unemployed. So that that's one way that the number is low, but still in any case, we did supposedly create these 2.7 million new jobs And some of those were new jobs, probably most of them. At this point, the jobs that did not come back after uh, the coronavirus lockdowns are never coming back. And there is a certain amount of those, probably millions, that were lost and are never coming back. Also, some companies found that they didn't need as many people. And uh, because people couldn't come to work, they figured out ways to automate or, or do with a lot less people. So in that way, they became more efficient. But as you can see, again, all of this year, for this entire year, we've been producing less stuff than we had the quarter before. So something's wrong. You've got more people producing less. And I have a feeling you're going to start to see those unemployment numbers go up, even with all the fudging, because... Many early indicators, and there's even been some media coverage of this, say that corporations are looking at uh, freezing hiring. That's the first thing they always do, and then they start laying people off. And there have been some layoffs in the tech sector. But in the meantime, we've got people that continue to be hired by companies. And, And for all those who don't already know, the Austrian theory of the business cycle says that when you have the central blank, uh, the central blank, that's what we should call it, the central bank inflating the currency, that you've got not just price inflation, which we'll talk about in a second, but you also have malinvestment because you, you are sending these false signals about interest rates because inflating the currency lowers the interest rate. 
because you send these false signals, uh, entrepreneurs engage in long-term projects that are not going to turn out to be profitable because they're working off an interest rate that usually tells them that there's a certain amount of savings. And that just doesn't just mean currency units, but a certain amount of real resources available to complete those long-term projects. And in reality, those resources are not there. The interest rate is lying to them, so to speak, because it's been manipulated lower by the central bank. Now, I've also done some podcasts on the fact that it's not as direct a relationship between the money supply, at least the base money supply, and interest rates anymore. Uh, I won't get into that now, but you uh, can go back and look at some of my previous podcasts on this. But in any case, manipulating the interest rate to be lower than the market would otherwise set it causes this malinvestment. And what does that mean? It means that stuff inputs, including people, employed people, are sent to work on projects that are not going to be profitable. Well, what's going on now? We have new jobs being created, millions of them. And as those millions of jobs have been created this year, we've produced less and less stuff, less and less goods and services. So you don't need an economics degree to know that that can't be good, right? Those people are working at things that are not valuable, that do not add to real wealth. And the only way you could add to real wealth is by adding products that people would voluntarily buy. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, It helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. But the Keynesians don't believe this. They just believe that employing people, no matter what you're doing, is creating wealth because all they can see is the demand side of uh, the price equation. But let me just read you uh, this passage from John Maynard Keynes, and I'll link to the general theory of employment, interest, and money, his you know great magnus opus uh, treatise that he wrote in the 1930s. And this really is the basis for all economic policy by the government in most cases. But he says, when involuntary unemployment exists, 
the marginal disutility of labor is necessarily less than the utility of the marginal product. Indeed, it may be much less. For a man who has been long unemployed, some measure of labor, instead of involving disutility, may have a positive utility. If this is accepted, the above reasoning shows how wasteful loan expenditure may nevertheless enrich the community on balance. Pyramid building, earthquakes, even wars may serve to increase wealth if the education of our statesmen on the principles of the classical economics stands in the way of anything better. So you hear that he's saying that even in a war would increase wealth because everyone's making stuff to blow other things up. Anyone who's familiar with Bastiat and the broken window theory, this should be um, striking you as nonsense immediately. But let me go on because there's two more paragraphs I want to read. It is curious how common sense, wriggling for an escape from absurd conclusions, has been apt to reach a preference for wholly wasteful forms of loan expenditure rather than for partly wasteful forms which because they are not wholly wasteful, tend to be judged on strict business principles. He puts business in scare quotes for some reason. For example, unemployment relief financed by loans is more radically accepted than the financing of improvements at a charge below the current rate of interest, whilst the form of digging holes in the ground known as gold mining, which not only adds nothing whatever to the real wealth of the world, but involves the disutility of labor is the most acceptable of all solutions. So I hope you didn't catch there that he also makes another fallacy that, that digging for gold doesn't add any real wealth as if gold is not wealth. But here's the kicker. Other than the thing about the wars being creating wealth, <laughs> here's another kicker. If the treasury were, were to fill old bottles with banknotes, bury them at suitable depths in disused coal mines, which are then filled up to the surface with town rubbish and leave it to private enterprise on well-tried principles of laissez-faire to dig the notes up again, parentheses, the right to do so being obtained, of course, by tendering for leases of the note-bearing territory, end parentheses, there need be no more unemployment, and with the help of the repercussions, the real income of the community and its capital wealth also would probably become a good deal greater than it actually is. It would indeed be more sensible to build houses and the like, but if there are political and practical difficulties in the way of this, the above would be better than nothing. So <laughs> I hope that it's a little wordy it's it's written in the way people spoke in 1930s not to mention an economist but do you get what he's saying here right this is the source i think of the paraphrase that Keynes said uh it, it's worthwhile for people to dig holes and fill them back up see the words aren't exactly the way people usually shorthand it but this is the passage they're talking about and he basically is saying that when people are unemployed involuntarily, that it's a worthwhile endeavor to pay them to do something that produces nothing of value. So you started with the banknotes and you put them in the bottles and you buried them. Okay, so that's a waste of labor and time and 
if, if you're paying somebody to bury them, of course, it's, it's a waste of that, those resources. And then you're paying them to dig up the thing, the notes you just buried. So at the end, you're left with nothing new. This is the broken window fallacy in full bloom, dressed up with lots of nice economic phraseology, but it's the same thing. You break the window and then someone's got to come fix it. No wealth was was added. In fact, wealth was lost because you had to pay for the window you already had before it was broken. Okay, so this is the root of all economic policy by presidents, governors, county executives. When Walmart comes to your town and gets all kinds of tax breaks in exchange for promising a certain amount of jobs, well, to the extent that they hire more people than they otherwise would to hit those job totals, that's a waste of money. That's a waste of resources. That makes the community as a whole poorer. Anytime you hear a politician talking about something that's going to create jobs for the sake of creating jobs, then you know already we've got bad economic thinking going on. Because need I remind you, the whole idea of running a profitable business is to produce as much as you possibly can of things for which there is demand with as few people as possible. At as low a cost as you can. That's the whole idea. And I've been writing about this for years, going back to the Solar City debacle right here in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, although I I live safely 45 minutes northeast of it now. But you don't want to pay somebody just to create jobs because that gives them an incentive to do economically idiotic things, which has raised the costs beyond what is necessary to produce their products. And and what you're doing when you create more jobs than you need is actually lowering worker productivity, which is just the amount of output divided by the number of employees needed uh, to produce that output. Now, this isn't just an aggregate thing. Every job has its own real productivity value, But by definition, if you've got a bunch of people employed unnecessarily to the enterprise, to the end goal of producing X amount of products, well, those are all zeros that get uh, averaged in. And guess what? The only way for wages to rise is for productivity to rise. And this is why wages rose during the Industrial Revolution because of the creation of all these new methods and all these new machines to automate things, you needed less workers to produce the same or more products. Therefore, the productivity of each worker rose, and that allowed their wages to rise. Meanwhile, the cost of what they were producing fell, and that, that meant exponential growth in their real wages and standard of living. And that's what you saw during the 19th century with relatively no monetary inflation. You always have more gold being added to the economy when you're on a gold standard, but it's pretty slow, something like 2% a year. It didn't just average 2% a year, but other than things like the California gold rush, little blips, it was a pretty steady and reliable 2% a year that uh, the account, that gold miners were able to dig up new gold. 
And this is the source of where Milton Friedman, who I, you know, we believe is are, was wrong on this monetary thing, but that's where he was getting his just replace the Fed with a computer that inflates at two percent a year, no matter what. But in any case, I just wanted to say a few words to point out that when you step back and stop looking at the, the trees and look at the whole forest, you obviously have a problem. When you have a much larger population and you still haven't regained all the jobs you used to need, unless they've been replaced by more productive methods. And that's only some of the explanation for why those 22 million jobs haven't all come back yet. But also, and much more importantly, that you're producing less stuff. Whenever you start producing less than you used to produce, well then, by definition, the population as a whole is getting poorer. So I guess I'll leave it there. I'll post some links to some things I think are relevant. You really should read Keynes' general theory to at least understand the enemy if you don't believe in the nonsense that he preaches. And uh, if you think you do, maybe you should read it and see how much nonsense is really in there. Basically, he's got one... uh, sophistry backflip after another to try to justify this constant need for government intervention into the economy. So he comes up with this theory that's supposed to be elegant and consistent for why government's always got to intervene. Of course, the Austrians are saying the government should never intervene. Well, which one of those two theories do you think the government's going to support? So you should always and everywhere be suspicious of government economists. I mean, if Ron Paul had gotten elected president, maybe that would be an exception to the rule. Of course, he wouldn't need to be hiring economists because he should be teaching the economists that get hired by the government. But for the most part, even during years where Republicans are in office, you've got all kinds of Keynesian thinking. You hear them tweeting it. You hear Trump tweeting it. So... It always pays, it's almost like George in Seinfeld, where it's like it's almost pays to do the opposite of what they say. They're the perfect contraindicator. And here's one glaring example. They're saying, look, we created all these new jobs. The economy's strong, even though we're producing less stuff. Just absolutely unbelievable. So uh, I've got lots of good stuff coming up this week. I did post on my Facebook page that I had Tom DiLorenzo coming on this week to talk about his new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. Um, Unfortunately, I got two books mixed up. The publisher actually reached out to me on two different books. And the one I got over the weekend was The Politically Incorrect Guide to Pandemics by Stephen Mosher. So I'm going to be setting up an interview with him. And it turns out I had switched these two That book was supposed to come out in the end of July. DiLorenzo's doesn't come out to August 16th. So I'm on the list of media to interview him. I will have that interview for you, but it probably won't be this week. It'll probably be closer to official release date. Now, you can already pre-order DiLorenzo's book. And in fact, I just thought of this this minute while I'm recording, but I'm going to definitely post a link to the Amazon pre-order page for DiLorenzo's book because it's a good antidote to Keynes' 
ridiculous treatise, but I, I would recommend that you read that uh, just so you know what the arguments are from the people that you disagree with. I, it's just like saying you, you got to read Mein Kampf. You can't go around criticizing Hitler if you don't read his book and find out what he was thinking uh, to uh, get himself to commit the atrocities that he did. Same with Vladimir Lenin and uh, Mao Zedong and, and all the rest of them, all the rest of the maniacs. You should definitely read their stuff. Uh, and find out you know what they were thinking and what what you'll find out also is that there's watered down versions of uh, some of the worst ideas in the world that are accepted as mainstream by your own government and its apologists in the media so anyway I will have JP Kirby from Young Americans for Liberty on Wednesday to talk about something exciting that they're achieving on college campuses believe it or not all the news from college campuses isn't bad. And then on Friday, I'm going to have Ivan Garcia Hidalgo and Jorge Arizu Rieta from Americano Media. I apologize to all Spanish speakers in the audience. I'm doing my best here. They're going to come on and talk about uh, voting trends among Hispanic voters in the United States what they're seeing and what their organization does as far as helping political campaigns with that kind of thing. So that should be an interesting discussion. They'll be here on Friday. And in the meantime, I want to thank all of the new supporters of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. I seem to get people joining on the weekend. I guess that I put out things that are for members only and people only have time to get to them maybe on Saturday morning. They're out there actually working a productive job in most cases, unlike the people we've been talking about most of this podcast. So uh, I want to thank everybody who just joined and let everybody who hasn't yet uh, know that you can go to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and find out how you can either join my Patreon or my Substack. There's lots of members-only content at each, and there's an explanation for what you get at each level and all of that kind of thing. So that's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. At least check it out for me. I'd very much appreciate that. And uh, as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at TomMullenSings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.